Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Pulp Culture Double Date. Uh, this week we are talking about Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 4. Now, I'm joined by Anija, Gerald, and Maggie. Can you say hello, everyone? Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, so uh, this is a full spoilers podcast. Someone is going to have to help me out here. What was the name of this episode? It's called The Last of the Starks. The Last of the Starks. Okay, so after a kind of controversial episode three, um, Battle of Winterfell, um, we're kind of we're kind of back with Game of Thrones, and I, I guess this is quite an important episode because uh, I guess the internet kind of had lost faith in Game of Thrones. So I'd love to understand how everybody felt about this episode. Now, this episode is kind of split into three main sections kind of and we'll kind of talk about it in in terms of those three main sections so basically the first part of this this episode is about the aftermath of the battle of winterfell it's about the uh, the grief process i guess and the celebration for like defeating the enemy of the uh, the the army of the dead um, and then basically immediately, like as part of this sort of celebration sequence, we immediately start segueing into sort of the political intrigue and, well, what is going to happen now after the Army of the Dead has been defeated? So the second part of this episode is basically uh, like is focused on that sort of the like not necessarily political, well, kind of political maneuverings that are going on in the background and kind of this discussion of, well, what should happen now, especially given that we've had this huge bombshell of John's um, true parentage. Um, And then the final section of this episode is basically the opening moves of the Battle of King's Landing, where um, Danny takes her army down to King's Landing and pretty dramatic events happen as she is getting close to King's Landing. So, yeah, let's. why don't we start by talking about the aftermath of the Battle of Winterfell. What did we all think about this? Let's just go around the table. What were people's favourite scenes? Did we enjoy the, the aftermath? Did we think it was a fitting aftermath of the Battle of Winterfell? Um, yeah, what were people's thoughts? Andrew, Jerry, Mags, who, who would like to shoot first? Max, why don't you go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I thought it was um, quite a um, uh, interesting approach to um, starting to to um, weed out where Jon Snow fits in the picture relative to Daenerys as a potential alternative leader. So I thought it was um, really great that he was the one who... Um, gave the kind of final farewell and send off to the um, to the deceased who had given their lives up um, during the 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 battle with um, the White Walkers and and with the um, Night King mm. and the way in which um, he you know the people around him responded to him um, during the feasting and the celebrations and how isolated Daenerys seemed at that. Um, at the celebration, even when she was trying to be kind and, you know, trying to build allies, for example, by giving um, Gendry um, the the castle, the Baratheon castle, and appointing him the lord, um, even that 
even though that went down well, it wasn't enough to kind of make her feel um, accepted or part of that kind of um, camaraderie that was clearly there amongst John and his people, and even amongst her um, advisors who were, you know, from Seven Kingdoms, um, from Westeros, sorry, um, you know, like a, a Tyrion, for example. Um, so I thought that was quite an interesting contrast. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with that. I, I think um, definitely from a political perspective, that opening celebration scene does really... Um, I mean, there's, that, there's a great scene where she's in the feasting hall and basically everyone around her has deep relationships with the people around them, which is why the celebration means so much. And she is so isolated, right? Like, and the mm. one person that she can really turn to is John. But John has all these people coming to him and congratulating him, and um, basically, sort of, because he's forged these relationships with wildlings and northerners and blah blah blah, right? So, yeah, I thought that w- that was um, quite an interesting way of setting up the the, the future, um, the future political machinations. Um, yeah, Anna Jo, Jerry, what, what do you guys think of this this first part of the episode? Yeah, I agree with you both. And I guess they had to keep Arya out of their celebration so that they could cast all the light on John, even though John did almost nothing. Yes, I agree. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, poor Daenerys. She's lost a lot, and they are not warm and welcoming, and even John isn't playing by uh, her rules. Um I think one of the fa- my favourite things about these scenes were the interactions between Hound and the Hound and Sansa. So, as a big, uh, I really loved their interactions in the book, and I've been waiting for these two to have a moment for so long, and I just thought they were not. It was not going to happen. So it was great to see them talking to each other, and you know, you could really see how much Sansa had grow- has grown, and the way she touches, you know, she puts her hand on the ha- on the Hound's hand kind of show him her thanks and that you know he has meant something to her and that clearly meant something to him it was really beautiful and jamie and brienne yeah what did we think about that was that <laughs> i thought it was gonna happen since um he knighted her so i know i know mags you thought it was not romantic but uh. the showrunners did say that he definitely had feelings for him. It was less clear what his feelings for her were. But as soon as they started getting drunk together, I just knew it was going to happen. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> so generally, I really enjoyed this sort of celebration bit. But I did... Look, I mean, I did feel that the Brienne Jamie thing was a little bit fan fiction-y, right? Totally. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, but... You know, look, I, I generally thought they did a pretty good job of this whole, the camaraderie thing. And I think it is due to this idea that, like, you've had seven seasons to build these characters and build these relationships with these characters, right? So it does feel nice when, you know, they've survived and they're, like, you know, the the scenes between Tyrion, Brienne and Jaime and Pod are, are really, they feel really organic and really, really great. So, um, yeah. Can I... And I think I think it's also important to showing 
how much Jamie just hates himself because he's finally found the possibility of happiness with Brienne, like a really good person he admires, brings out the best in him and sees the best in him. And he just can't take it. Like he can't sit with it and run with it. He kind of, he has to go and self-destruct. And I don't think he's going to protect Cersei. I think he's going to kill Cersei. But he just, you know, that's not great for his emotional well-being to kill his twin sister and former lover and mother of his child but he has to go down that path because he just cannot accept you know a, a, a good healthy love with Brienne yeah it was very interesting how he does he he decides because I, I when I watched that scene one of the things that I, I was questioning so obviously for our audience Jamie decides to leave Brienne and travel down to King's Landing because so this kind of ties in with the later part of the episode, but basically he hears of what's happened at King's Landing, and he decides to go down there, right? And I guess my question is, what is Jamie actually going to achieve in King's Landing? Like, He's going to strangle her to death. <laughs> isn't he just going to get executed the moment she sees him? She's going to well, see him. Well, she loves gonna... Tyrion too much to execute him. So yeah, okay. she loves her family. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. She doesn't execute Tyrion as much as she hates Tyrion, so could she really execute Jamie? But yeah, I was like, there's gonna be dragon fire down there, and you're a one-armed man. What are you going to do? He's <laughs> the king slayer, though. Um, yeah, Jerry, what, what do you think of this this first part of this episode? Um, so I thought. This episode requires Daenerys Targaryen to cover a lot of ground emotionally. She has a very uh, big arc, um, going from victorious dragon queen to basically daughter of the Mad King, ready to burn the entire population of King's Landing to a crisp in order to achieve what she perceives to be her destiny, namely sitting on the Iron Throne. And so this part of the episode, whilst it doesn't feel particularly busy, does set up does do the work of setting up the um, the story of Daenerys losing everything and everyone she loves around her. So um, there is distance between her and John, particularly because uh, she tells him not to not to tell um, Sansa and Arya of his true parentage, but as we know, he, he does so anyway. And she detects that um, the people of the North will never accept her as queen so already she's on edge perhaps even slightly paranoid at, at the very least um, without the mollifying influence of jorah and now we understand the true significance of the scene in episode two when jorah tells uh, daenerys to try and make peace with sansa jorah there is set up as um a mollify, mollifying moderating influence on daenerys um making her appreciate that Sometimes she has to suck in her pride and accept uh, losing a bit of face in order to get the job done. Jorah is no longer there to whisper these those soothing words into her ear, and so she finds herself increasingly um, unmoored and unconstrained by um, influences that previously would have kept her worst impulses in check. So I thought even though this part of the episode seems light, um, particularly because of all the fan service relating to Jamie and Brienne, there's actually a lot going on here in order to try and set up um, her transformation into um, murderous, mad, uh, 
and you know into uh, mad and generally um, ready to to destroy and lay waste everything for the sake of fulfilling her destiny. You know, you know, Jerry. I think that's that's very true. Like, if you th- and I think actually, look on reflection on this episode. I know I was quite hard on the last episode, but I actually quite enjoyed this episode because I felt like even though there was a lot of ground that was covered. And look, from a pacing perspective, I don't think this episode was a perfectly paced episode or whatever, right? But I felt like it did what it needed to do. And I thought it did so with enough subtlety for it to be believable. So Mm. when I say that, like specifically, there are numerous scenes with Danny where you can see like there are cracks appearing in her. And if, Mm -hmm. if people who are interacting with her had just moved a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right they would have mended those cracks. But because they chose a slightly different path, those cracks just kept getting bigger and bigger, right? So it's kind of this little fissure that by the end of the episode, you see on her face, she's just livid, right? Where the little fissure has expanded into this huge void, essentially. And I I think that's actually very believable in the psychology of individuals, right? Because no one, I think, immediately becomes unmoored and unhinged but little actions and like the way other people interact with you kind of slowly tilt you towards this way until it just becomes irretrievable essentially right and i think that's like quite it feels quite organic and quite realistic right and i think in this opening part of the episode there's her interaction with john and this episode, John just frustrates me, right, as a character, because I really like him as a character, but he is also a complete moron. Like, he's a moron. What she is saying to him is absolutely, it absolutely makes sense. When she says to him, please do not tell your sisters, because if this gets out and you don't swear your friend and your brother to secrecy... I'm, yeah, it's out of control. It's out of control, right? And any any idiot would like anybody would be able to tell you that, right? This is not like political science. If they set John up to value honesty and his word and integrity above the smart move above all else, right? Remember when exactly. um, Cersei... Yes. Yeah, remember that meeting with I Cersei know, and, and he, he refused to lie? This is true to his character. Like, he he values idiot, yeah. honesty and integrity. I'm going to stand up for John. He's still the hottest person on the show. He is, but <laughs> he's such a moron. Like, no, there are moments well, where you think, just... I actually think we lost the hottest person on the show today, this week. I think... For R.I.P. Misunday. Can I just say... The opening of this episode, let's talk about the elephant in the room here, right? The opening of this episode was a grave injustice. How could John, (laughs) his dog was injured, came back from the fight, would not even pet his dog. Wouldn't I pet know. him once, right? Because the and then CG he got rid of him because he has a better pet now. Oh my! I was so livid. That was that was the straw that broke the Jon Snow back for me, right? I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? That dog is whining. He wants some love and affection. Why are you not petting him? What's wrong with you? Oh. Anyway, <laughs> that was an outrage. That was that was the outrage of this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> um. Okay. So, I think 
that makes a pretty good segue into the sort of the central part of this episode, which is kind of the politics, right? Where um, Tyrion, again, basically, all of a sudden Tyrion gets thrust into the center of this power game because, um, look, I mean, like, there's a lot of pieces at play. Sansa clearly has her own play as well. Clearly Sansa is now in a, in a mindset where she's not going to be anybody's... She's not going to bend the knee to anybody, essentially, right? And she mm-hmm. is just going to maneuver for her family. Like, in some ways, she's become quite Cersei-like. You know how Cersei keeps talking about the Lannister family and what, um, like, she's willing to do anything for the Lannister family? Like, there's a scene in the Godswood where all the Starks are gathered and basically Arya and Sansa are, like, straight up to Jon. Well, you're a member of this family, so... We like, mm. as in, we we need to do what what needs to be done to protect the family. So, I thought that was that, that's actually that's actually a really good spot, Daz. And I suppose it's no coincidence then that in this episode, Cersei is a redhead. Is she a redhead? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's um, yeah. I, I think they're kind of setting that up. So I think like all these characters are just morally, no one is morally spotless anymore everyone like i love how the moment except john except john of course because (laughs) but then he didn't pet his dog so he's dead to me (laughs) i think i think with john though and particularly when you're playing the level of politics and millions of people living and dying like stupid becomes its own form of immoral um and 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 i think that's really the problem with him at this point in the game, he's just so freaking dumb, and and it, you know you just can't help but think, yeah, you're the prince who was promised to be dumb because <laughs> he's so he's so stupid at every turn. He makes the stupid call, even though the right call isn't particularly that hard. Yeah, and if you- he's entirely within his power to make to make the right call because Bran says to him. It's your choice. So Bran isn't gonna Bran isn't gonna spill his guts. Bran isn't gonna be isn't gonna be about to tell either Aya or Sansa who John really is. But John makes that choice anyway. And for my money, even though he might feel some sense of emotional indebtedness to his well cousins, really, um, I don't actually understand why he felt the need to tell them. He's not actually lying to them. He's just not telling them something oh, that they Gerald. don't really need to know. Deceit is deceit. Yeah, but then his his father kept that lie for 18 years. To this, protect him. Well, this secret was like... <laughs> I guess yeah, his father did this. Know, he, should, he should at least know that keeping keeping this to himself is likelier to, to keep the peace throughout the Seven Kingdoms and ensure that the North isn't in, isn't in conflict with the rest of Westeros. As it is, by by disclosing this secret, he's probably set in train a chain of events that will lead to conflict between the North and the rest of the Seven Kingdoms and quite possibly lead to who knows how many deaths as a mad, bad Daenerys decides after you know, knocking Cersei off to train her sights on Winterfell and just completely 
emulated. But this is why I feel like this episode was actually very well done from an emotional perspective from, like, for Daenerys, because you kind of feel like in that scene where Jon is with Danny, if Jon had actually said to her, I promise I will not tell anybody, I've bent the knee, that's it, right? I felt like that would have really, like, that crack that was opening would have kind of closed up a bit, Would have healed. Yeah, Yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, all through that, all through the beginning of that episode, she kept turning to him and making googly eyes at him and was like, why can't we just have it the same way it was? And it's because of his damned honesty that, like, in in some ways I really agree with Gerald because it's kind of like a very small lie that would make the realm safe. It would not drive Daenerys to madness, essentially, right? Like, it's like the little the little kindness that saves someone from madness, essentially, right? But instead, like, the first thing he does is that he goes to the godswood, tells his sisters, and then it's kind of like he makes them swear that you won't tell anybody, right? And then it's just like Chinese whispers from then on, right? And then everyone knows. Within one episode, there's this scene where Varys is on the ship with Tyrion, and, like, Varys is like, how many people know? Tyrion's like, eight I'm like, before this episode, no one knew. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's incredible that John thought a pinky square would be enough to keep this under wraps. Guys, give him a break. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, I think Egret was absolutely right. You know nothing, John Snow. <laughs> All right, shall we move on to the scheming between Tyrion and Varys? Yes, yes. What, what did you guys think about that? Do, do we think that Tyrion and... Do you think Tyrion is going to betray her? Do you think Varys has betrayed her? Varys is definitely on the other side. So he has flipped. He's done his duty. He has told Daenerys that he thinks she's making the wrong move. We know she's going to burn them all next um, episode because that's pretty much what Miss Sunday gave her permission to do when she said the word Dracarys. Um, Danny has now lost everything except for Grey Worm. She's lost um, the Dothraki. She's lost Jorah. She's lost Miss Sunday. She's lost two of two her dragons. dragons. That's a big deal. That's a big That's a deal. Big freaking deal. <laughs> she is going to burn them all, and of course, Varys is going to betray her, and he will die, as per Mel- uh, Melisandre's prophecy. He will die when he does so. Will Tyrion betray her? Um, that's I don't know. I don't know. We we really don't have enough to go by. I think eventually, maybe. Yeah. So what I did really enjoy about this episode also is. I felt like Tyrion made a comeback this episode, like character-wise, right? Not necessarily like sort of being... Intelligence-wise. Not intelligence-wise, but character-wise, I felt like his character made a comeback because all of a sudden we get to see a guy who is caught. Like, he likes Daenerys and he thinks that if set on the right path, Daenerys actually has the opportunity, like, as in she is not inherently a crazed tyrant, right? But she can also see that she has aspects of her character that are sort of tyrannical, tyrannical, like naturally tyrannical, right? And he can also see sometimes the hypocrisy in her words. And I like that the show admits that, right? That the show is able to say to its audience, "We, we understand that you guys can detect this, right? We don't have to, like spell it out for you in yeah. big, big letters, but, like, even the characters... Because Varys says... 
Yeah, Vary says it himself. Like, people who drink their own Kool-Aid are problems, right? People yeah. who believe in that they are destiny are to be watched yeah, carefully. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Tyrion in this episode is great because he's someone who kind of is like, I can see the cracks going, but this is still someone that if we patch the cracks, is still okay, right? They're not a horrible, horrible person, right? They're like, you know, they've done some good things. And it, it, in some ways, it's kind of like that sort of where he will, where he lands on that is actually, where he will end up landing on that is actually quite a compelling is, is, makes his character compelling again, essentially, right? Um, and I think the the moral quandary he goes through it, it feels it feels realistic. I, I don't know if if that makes mm. sense, but it feels realistic in the sense that he ha- he makes these little he makes the little comment like at the end of his chat with Varys, like maybe Cersei will kill all of us and we won't have to make the decision. And it's just this like little joke that kind of, as an audience, you kind of sympathise with a little bit, which is like, well, you know, this is like a super difficult decision to make, and um, and maybe it's for the best that we don't make it, and it's better that no one betrays anybody, and we just like some external factor takes it out of our hands, right? I, I felt that was like a really compelling, interesting sort of line that. Like, it spoke to me, right? And it made, like, it really re-engaged me with Tyrion's character after a long time in the wilderness for him. Yeah. Jory, what do you think about this this whole sort of power politics section of the episode? The first thing I want to note is that the scene between Varys and Tyrion in the throne room in Dragonstone was very reminiscent of some of the scenes that took place in season one between Varys and Littlefinger in the throne room in the Red Keep, um, in which the two of them, by which I mean Varys and Littlefinger, would speak in code, kind of scheming and um, and plotting um, to put in train a, a, a set of events that ultimately would, lead, would have led to the to the death of Ned Stark. This epi- this particular scene is a nice is reminiscent of the, of those scenes, but sets up a nice contrast with them because instead of speaking indirectly and sort of in code, um, Tyrion and Varys are very upfront and direct with each other, and they pose the question for each other: Is Daenerys Targaryen the right person to rule the Seven Kingdoms? Varys, unlike in previous episodes where he's been, unless unlike in previous seasons where he's been quite ambiguous, has come to quite a firm landing ground on that question. He's decided, no, Daenerys probably isn't the right person to rule, and Jon Snow, or Aegon Targaryen, for all his for all his many flaws, um, is, pos- is probably the person better suited to sit on the Iron Throne and rule the Seven Kingdoms. And like you, I, I appreciate the fact that Tyrion is put in the in the middle of a moral quandary, or perhaps not so much a moral quandary as a as a policy and political one, because um, whichever call he makes could result in the death of millions of people, millions of innocent people. And good on Varys for reminding the viewers that there are people, subjects, whose lives depend upon the outcome of this so-called Game of Thrones. Too seldom this show pays attention to the fact that there are millions of people whose lives will be affected by the petty politicking of the characters on the show. 
And as the show has gone on, it's been less and less concerned with the the lives of the man and woman on the street. So good on Varys for reminding viewers and for reminding Tyrion that that's ultimately what is at stake. And it's not the pride of any one person. It's not the destiny of any one person that is at stake. It's really the lives and the livelihoods of um, the entire population of Westeros. So Varys injecting a note of a democratic spirit into the into the politicking of the show was also quite refreshing. So I found this scene um, really, really well written and well acted, and it's kind of a it's kind of a pivot point because it sets up so many threads. I think that ultimately will course through the remain the remainder of the show, namely how exactly it is that Varys schemes to put John on the Iron Throne rather than Daenerys. We have the dilemma of um of Tyrion and both those threads will in turn feed into the ultimate fate of Daenerys and the success of her campaign in King's Landing. So a pivotal scene and one that I think will loom larger as um as the rest of the season progresses. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Mags, do you have uh, anything to add to the politicking aspect of this show? Of this episode? Um not really. I mean, at the moment, I guess the main characters who are doing the politicking are really um, Tyrion and Varys and Cersei and her hand, who I now can't remember the name of. Kyburn. Kyburn, that's it. Um, four of them, and potentially Sansa up in the north. There's very few lords left who are mm. sort of part of this. Mm. So it's really in the hands of a very small number of people. I mean, Gendry doesn't really count. Yes. Um, <laughs> 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 you see one left. Um, and the um, the free folk have gone. You know, John's also most of his kind of close allies have have left. Sam's gone. Um, the free folk have gone. Um, so it's it's interesting to think of Tyrion being potentially the X factor that shifts the game one way or, or the other i mean mm. jamie riding down to king's landing who knows what he's going to do uh we all know <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's quite yeah i mean I, I, it's interesting that the ha- you know that the game kind of rests almost in Tyrion's hands i suppose i guess the the um the the wild card will be whether or not um uh anyone from across the sea comes to Daenerys's aid. Yeah. Yeah. Are you guys aware of the Valencar prophecy? Yes. This is the Okay, one, good. This is the one that Cersei's but the Valencar prof- prophecy is not in the show. Not in the show. It is only yeah. in the books, right? It's where yeah. the younger brother will strangle her and technically Jamie yes. is younger by her than her yes. by like a few seconds yes. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. 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 So what did you think about it, Darren? What did you think about the politicking? No, I, I thought it was great. I thought, um, look, I mean, generally for this episode, and I think it was the politicking that did a lot of it, I actually thought this was a... I I really enjoyed this. I felt like this was a return to form for Thrones. It felt like Thrones again. Like, last episode, for whatever did, reason, didn't really feel as much Thrones. And then, basically, the fact that in this episode, 
even in the celebration portion, they immediately t- turn to this discussion about who is going to rule the Iron Throne, right? And all these sort of backroom, like, discussions. All this, like, uh, I actually think that that... I think Gerald made a point a few episodes ago where he said that at the core of this show, it is about power, the exercise of power, what gives people the right to rule. Like, you know, this discussion of power is central to this show. And I think this like this episode kind of refocused the show on that aspect, right? And I think it is hugely beneficial for the show. That mm. it, it, it's I also think something, um, I also think something very said really strikes to something that's been bothering me for a long time. And so Daenerys is the breaker of chains, right? She frees slaves. That to me seems highly incompatible with her insistence on being a monarch, like a ruling Mm. monarch and burning people when they don't accept her reign and prefer to follow another. It just seems incompatible. And something Varys said kind of really highlights that, that maybe the best person to rule is the one who doesn't want to rule. Yeah, yeah. So I I think it's, it is, I think the show does sort of raise interesting questions about, you know, who is actually in the best position to rule? As in, like, who is best to rule, like, for the people, <laughs> essentially, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, Jerry's right, of course. Like, this show does bring up the fundamental issue with monarchies. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um, anyway, but I think this whole, this whole section of the episode, it segues... Like, look, a lot happens towards the back end of this episode as well. So all of a sudden, we see Daenerys takes her army. And I think there are dragons. Are they at Dragonstone, or are they at King's Landing when Euron ambushes them? I, I don't really... I couldn't really tell. Mm-hmm. They're sailing towards Dragonstone. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Yeah. So basically what happens is that, like, again... all. This is the frustrating thing about Game of Thrones towards these later seasons. Like, a lot of stuff happens... Like, the time... You know, five minutes in an episode and two weeks have passed, right? While, you know... But last do we ep- really care about that? Yeah, I mean, it does... The pacing feels a little bit off there, but... Look, I mean, mm. at the end of the day, it, it they need to keep the plot moving, right? So, basically, Daenerys is down at Dragonstone already with her army, and they get ambushed by Euron's guys. And... Like, I, I, I was pretty shocked by the way they just eliminated Rhaegal as well. It, it was very it was very abrupt and I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it was it it was like it felt a little bit anticlimactic as well, because this is dragon that's just fought through like hordes of undead and then in two seconds it just gets shot down by the Well plot yeah. Plot wise it was important for him to die in this episode and not at the hands of the Night King to fuel Daenerys's rage towards correct. King's Landing. Yes, mm. correct. And Cersei. Yes, correct. Like it adds to that story of how, like you know, someone like Daenerys could end up burning the entire the inhabitants mm. of King's Landing, right? Like it, it gives credence and gives motivation to why that would actually happen. I think mm. it was it's useful that he died at that point, but it was super abrupt 
right? And then that whole scene when like the pirates attack and then it basically just cuts to black and then a bunch of them wash off into the shore but somehow Miss Sunday gets captured that was just yeah. that was really weird I was like what <laughs> yeah it was... did you guys did you guys find, find that sort of pacing a little bit weird yeah but it's like three episodes to go like this this is what pacing is one thing I'm just gonna overlook yeah basically yeah <laughs> yeah can I just say, in amidst Daenerys losing everything, losing Rhaegal, losing the Sunday, losing half the Dothraki, losing half the Unsullied, it occurs to me now that she really should patch in a call to her main man, the most effective killer on the show, Dario Nahar. That's right, Dario the Lothario. Where is that guy? <laughs> Get him Where back. Is that guy? <laughs> I mean, she must be feeling like a right and proper fool for leaving him in Marine two seasons ago because he, he just he would have been the right man for this particular moment. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that look of determination on her face as she storms off just before the credits roll is a look of I'm gonna have to patch in a call to Dario now. <laughs> Do you think Dario? I, mean, I, I just, I just think it's no, weird that this, in this moment of absolute desperation, the most kick-ass killer who's not Arya Stark is just completely absent from the field. But hey, that's how the show the show plays now. Um, and well, so Dario has to rule Marine and Essos. Essos matters too. Do they? <laughs> This is the frustrating thing about her, right? She has all these kingdoms that, like, she doesn't necessarily yeah. need to take at Westeros. Yeah. She could very well go, go back, back to, to Essos. South. Yeah. yeah. Go back to Essos where you're loved and stay there. Yeah, like, what is wrong with ruling in Essos instead of Westeros? I don't get it. But anyway. And Shadaria. Yeah. Dario is clearly, like, he's a pretty good looking dude and he likes her. What's wrong with that? And he's not her nephew like bonus points for that not only is he not her nephew he's not dumb that counts for quite a lot maybe not in her eyes but like for the rest of us counts for quite a lot Dara Naharis but look I mean I think the show does give her motivation because basically for her it's kind of like she's in this position where it's like well I've lost so much I've got to dig in now, right? Like, it's... I, I actually think that this episode does a really good job of giving Daenerys motivation for doing what she's doing, right? It's like, you know, you, people... Like, you can understand this, right? It's like gamblers when they lose a certain amount of money. And it's just like, no, well, I can't walk away from the table now. I have to... All in. in. Yeah, all in, <laughs> essentially, right? Like, and all these people dying, like... I thought it was quite shocking that Missande got captured and then... Look, spoiler, Missandei gets executed at the end of this. This was unexpected because everybody thought Greyworm was going to be like cannon fodder, <laughs> but instead, he's going to survive, and as Jerry said, he's going to scatter her ashes at night. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I think it was important that she died in the same way that Rhaegal died because she is like her number one fan. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, Missandei is... Mm -hmm. Like, it's like the scene last episode in the crypts when Missandei stands up for Danny in the crypts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they are, like, best friends, essentially, right? And so she's literally, like... Literally, yeah, she's only got Grey Worm. Grey Worm is the only one who's left. So, yeah, yeah she's, she's, like... It's all in for her at this point, right? Which, yeah. Um, 
what did we think about Tyrion um, at the gates? Uh, what was he doing? And I can't believe Cersei didn't kill him. <laughs> <laughs> She's waiting for the right moment. That's not the right moment. That's not the right moment. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, what I don't understand is this. She offers bloody Bronn, Riveran, to kill him. She's got him in, she's got Tyrion in her sights, and she just can't pull the trigger. Like, what's with that? Yeah, that did seem odd. It, it really did seem odd. And I think that scene was meant to show how Tyrion, like, is desperate to save the people of King's Landing, right? I think it's meant to show an aspect of Tyrion's character more than anyone else, right? But, at the same time, you're kind of made to... You kind of think, well, what is Tyrion actually going to achieve here? Like, does he really think that walking up to Cersei is going to convince her to, to stand down? Like, at this point, no one's standing down, right? Like, mm. It was the dumbest plan ever. Yeah, like, it seems like all these people with good intentions and just no plans. Like, mm. it's like John and Tyrion are both people with great intentions and just no plans at this point in time, where they're just basically begging people to, like, do the right thing. It's like, what? <laughs> That's not a plan. <laughs> There's nothing to motivate <laughs> these people to do the right thing. So <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, it's almost a sense of naivety. Um you know, him, John, um, they were thinking that, you know, it's one of those situations where you just want kind of Sansa to be right there and to just speak her mind and, and tell Daenerys, this is kind of what's going to happen and good luck to you. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's inevitable. The fight is inevitable. Yeah. I, I think that, I think with John, it's naivety. I think with Tyrion, it the way I read that scene was that it was out of desperation, right? Because he literally knew that there were no other cards that he could play. So he did it out of desperation, which I thought was, um, again... But the thing I... is... Yeah, oh, sorry. No, no, go, go, go. I was going to say, though, it's not... But the, the thing is, though, like, when I, the way I read that was not sort of out of desperation to stop the situation because he knew Cersei could, would probably not change. Mm. But almost like... Um, his attempt to salvage the situation for Daenerys. He mm. like, desperately wants to believe that um, she won't become like her father and that his belief in her will be um, confirmed. But the moment that Cersei lops um, Lysandra's head off, he knows that was the point where he was like, well, I guess Varys is going to be right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was great that Missandei's last line for for Daenerys mm. was Yeah, yeah, that was really clever. So, and, and I thought I thought the people of Narth were meant to be peace loving, though. Yeah, clearly, <laughs> clearly not. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> not when you're two days from retirement, Jerry. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, and look, I, I actually thought Amelia Clark was pretty good this episode. Yeah, I know people give a lot of crap for, like, they give her crap, right? But I felt... Wonderful person, bad actor. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but I felt that she, the rage, I I, I felt like I could sense her rage in that final scene, right? Like, it felt, Mm. like, as I said, I felt like Danny's 
rage and motivation felt earned this episode. So, yeah. Um, I think it, I think the transition was probably just a bit too quick, and I think I don't think that's the fault of Amelia Clark at all. I think it's the fault of the writers. I think it's the fact that the showrunners are bored with their own project. Benioff and Weiss want to move on to make their Star Wars trilogy, so they've decided to give themselves only six episodes in the season. They've only given themselves this season to wrap everything up. And so in the aftermath of the death of the Night King, they've got to really step on the accelerator in order to get to the finish line. And so they've got to really drive this transition um, from Victorious Dragon Queen to um, Mad Queen, as it were. And I think, despite Amelia Clark's best efforts, and she does try, very, she does do pretty good work in this episode. I think it's just a bit too quick. I think um, that the 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 tailspin from the heights of victory to the depths of rage, despair and willingness to commit genocide for the sake of sitting on the Iron Throne, part of it has already been seeded in previous seasons because we have seen her ruthless, nasty side, like when she cooked the Talis. Mm -hmm. But I still feel that this particular arc in this episode happens a bit too quickly to be entirely believable or credible. Um, which is not to say that, again, Amelia Clark doesn't do a good job in trying to portray that arc. I just think she's let down a bit by the writing because they are just so keen to, to finish the story. Mm-hmm. I thought they'd done a really great job, actually, of showing that turn. Like, think of everything she's lost for these people who hate her. You know, these people of Westeros, she's lost everything like everything she's worked her whole life for and she's kind of losing john you know the person she's in love with and this is the very first time her authority and her right to sit on the throne has been challenged by his better claim um so if you were going to show that change quickly like they couldn't have set up better circumstances for that change to seem believable i think that's probably right but the thing is we've seen transformations in other characters in other shows or in other form of media and the the transformation has always been quite deliberate and happened over quite a long time which is not to say sudden shifts Mm -hmm. can't happen but take for instance breaking bad the story of walter white and his his transition from meek mild-mannered chemistry teacher to drug lord um that's that's a big shift that happens happens over quite a lot of time the story of michael corleone the godfathers from the golden child war veteran to criminal under you know criminal overlord again happens over quite a stretch and i think they while they seeded elements of this transition in past seasons and past episodes of the show they've really hit the accelerator to such an extent that there is an element of artifice about the transition in this episode not so much that it was completely jarring and took me out of it i just think you know it would have it was a little less elegant than it otherwise could have been yeah i mean look i think i probably agree with both of you in that i agree with anager in the sense that 
for what it was and for how much time we have left in this season, it felt like probably the best they could do with the space that they had. But the reality is that um, if they had... Like, it's kind of like you kind of need some sometimes these arcs. You need you need time to breathe, right? Like, it's... With TV, as opposed to movies, like, character development, you kind of need a few episodes for it to breathe out of it, right? And I guess because they don't have that breathing room, it... Like, it feels... it. There is definitely the sense that it's rushed, but I feel like Game of Thrones has been like that for the last two seasons, right? Where things have been hurtling. Um, <laughs> yeah, like season, you know, four, like season five and six, I think, were quite slow, and then seven and eight, things just like were like on a bullet train, essentially. So, um, yeah, I think I, I think th- there is a element of they just need to finish the show. So, yeah. Look, generally, uh, like, I'd be interested in seeing what ev- everyone's general views are, like whether this is a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I, I personally thought this was thumbs up. I-, I enjoyed this episode a lot more than Battle of Winterfell. Um, yeah. Massive, massive thumbs up. And I did not expect to see fighting and action in this episode. And it was a very, um, it was a great surprise when it happened. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Max? No, I was really, I was really drawn in, and it just reminded me how compelling a character Cersei Lannister has become. Like she was only on scene, like in the screen, mm-hmm. in one scene in the entire episode, and that was in some ways the best scene. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, she's, she's, yeah. The way they've got Amazing. her dressed as well is very, yeah. They've yeah. definitely got Cersei on point, yeah. yeah. Jerry, did you, did, you, did you overall thumbs up or thumbs down on this episode? Overall, thumbs up. Um, more thumbs, certainly, than last week's episode. So, uh, you know, at least you could see what was going on, which was a big help. I had totally forgotten what it's like to, to be able to see what's going on in, in the show. It was totally disorienting, but quite pleasant, I must say. So, so, that, was, so that, was a, that was a good start. And yeah. I think... And I think the character work in this episode, of course, was much stronger simply because this wasn't a battle episode. And so you had um, you had um, some really fine moments from a lot of the cast in this episode. Um, I think this is this episode is probably Peter Dinklage's best episode in like two seasons. Yep. Um, Lena Hetty is excellent always, uh, and I think. Nikolai Costa Waldau and Gwendolyn uh, Christie as uh, Jamie and Brienne respectively did really fine work. The, the farewell scene between them was was gut wrenching, um, and uh, you know even though the the sto- their story this episode began kind of as fan service, it became something more by the time they said goodbye to each other. Mm. Um, I think that's probably the last they'll see of each other ever again, mm. um, and. Uh, the fact that there was a brief moment when happiness was possible for them, when peace was possible for them, and that came to a sudden and an abrupt end because of Cersei. It was a powerful and very poignant moment in the episode. But isn't that... I mean, so to that point... So we need to wrap up soon, but to that point, isn't that the point of this episode... There are a lot of character arcs that mirror that, right? Where it feels like happiness is possible, 
for a lot of the couples, right? So you have Arya and Gendry, you have John and Danny, you have Brienne and um, Jamie. Jamie. Jamie, right? And probably Missandei and Grey Worm, maybe, right? It's kind of like you have this fleeting moment where it's like you can have a happy ending. But the choices people make basically mean... And the choices people make basically because of the Game of Thrones, right? The power politics, the allegiances, and that sort of thing, right? Like, that breaks up that that possibility. So they set it up for a very brief moment with all these characters that you could potentially have a happy ending. But because of the circumstances, because of their choices, because of their characters, it just gets, like, ripped apart, right? Like, by the end, end of the episode, everything is in disarray again. And I thought that was, like, it felt intentional, right? That you had these mirrors, right? Like, the Arya one was probably the less least satisfying because I'm not entirely sure what Arya's going to do. But, like, I, I guess... going to kill Daenerys. Prediction. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. I, actually, <laughs> I was saying to Max, do you think Varys has just taken a contract out on her? Yeah. <laughs> Why not, right? Faceless man contract. Yeah, it's like she's right Which there. Arya will answer. <laughs> yeah, she's right there. <laughs> Give her a coin. Get your work done. <laughs> yeah. So, so how good it would be if Arya put on Jon Snow's face and then shanked Daenerys? <laughs> oh, I don't... See, so I, I think next episode, what's going to happen is that she's just going to burn King's Landing down, and that prophecy mm. from earlier. In season two or three, in the warlocks—is it the warlocks of Karth? Was it Karth? Mm. Or, you know, when yeah. she sees the prophecy and she wanders through the—it looks like snow, but I guess it's going to be it's ash. ash. It's ash, yeah. right? Mm. She's going to burn everything down, and I think what's going to happen is that she's going to walk through that throne room, and then at the end of it, John is going to come down with his army after everything has been burnt down, and he's going to be horrified, right? And I think he's going to betray her at that point. Uh, we saw on the preview, they're fighting together. Oh, are they? Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe not then. <laughs> Theory disproved. The end. Don't listen to me. I thought that Jorah was Azor Arai. <laughs> so, clearly not. <laughs> okay. Hey, mate, it, it happens to the best of us for about three seasons now. I was, uh, I've, been, I've been saying that Miss Sunday would sit on the Iron Throne. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, um, thank. I, is there anything else we want to talk about? I think, I think we should be done for this episode, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. Um, and we'll be back next week for episode five, second last episode of this season of Game of Thrones. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.